had to work out what I needed for this very changed world that I wanted to go back into. And over and over again, I circled this word enchantment, which seemed to unpack so many different ideas for me about being fascinated and engaged and full of awe and wonder, but mainly feeling like there was a little tingle of magic in the world that I might not fully understand, but that took me back to that almost childhood sense of being drawn deeply into something and playing within that space. Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of personal pain and social division. Today I am talking with Catherine May, author of a new book called Enchantment. Uh, Catherine is also the author of a book called Wintering, which was a New York Times bestseller and a really popular book a couple of years ago. Uh, So you might remember her from that, although I didn't get to talk to her then because I didn't have a podcast then. Um, But now I do. And I was so excited when I had the opportunity to talk to Catherine about awakening wonder, relearning enchantment connection to the natural world, living every day with a continual sense of the presence of God. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, I am delighted to be here today with Catherine May, author of a new book called Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I have lots and lots of questions for you, and I also feel as though we could sit here and spend our entire time together simply talking about the title of your book. I will not (laughs) spend our whole time talking about the title, but I thought that might be a good place to start. Um, Really, I wanted to just ask you, talk to us about the idea of enchantment and what it was that drew you to that topic and, you know, how you got there. Tell us the story of, of enchantment, um, how this book came to being into being, but also the, what you even mean when you say that word. Sure. Yeah. So enchantment was a word that kept coming up when I was trying to explain this need I was feeling, you know, and it was against a background of life during and after the pandemic and the lockdowns where I got to the point where I felt so seized up with brain fog and Mm. burnout that I just couldn't even think straight let alone make any progress with any projects I was working on or read a book or like all the basic things had fallen away from me and I had this strong sense that even though I was not having a great time, I didn't want to return to life as it had been before. Like to Mm. some extent, I'd experienced a relief during the lockdowns. You know, the the pace of change, um, the pace of life had slowed down, I should say. And the thought of going back into the world as it was just filled me with horror. Like I could feel it in my body that I didn't want to spend so much time like in crowded spaces or rushing between appointments. And I I had to work out what I needed for this very changed world that I wanted to go back into. And over and over again, I circled this word enchantment, which seemed to unpack Mm. so many different ideas for me about being fascinated and engaged and full of awe and wonder, but mainly feeling like there was a little tingle of magic in the world that I might not fully understand, but that took me back to that almost childhood sense of being drawn deeply into something and playing within that space. Mm. I I want to 
go back to what you just said about the childlike sense of wonder. But before that, what I'm also wondering about is, you know, some people would say we have lived in a disenchanted age. Actually, this was an I was reading an essay in The New Yorker this morning um, and read this. Um, it was about the uh, fact that English majors are dropping like people who study English in college Mm -hmm. and university as just precipitously falling. And so they were writing about why there's no longer any English majors. And one of the things that, um, the author quotes is contemporary critics pride themselves on their power to disenchant and the disenchantment Mm -hmm. has reached students. And so I'm thinking not only about enchantment, but also about disenchantment. And one question I have for you is whether you think looking back on that pre-pandemic time, is the was there a sense of disenchantment that you hadn't noticed and the pandemic opened up the space to notice that and the longing for it to be different? Like, is that a, is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah, I think so. But I'd go even further to say that I'd almost deliberately chased a sense of disenchantment in the first half of my life. You know, mm-hmm. it was almost a project that I thought that, it was much better to be completely rational and governed by science and to reject anything that felt esoteric or um, quasi-religious perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and actually I was really aware of my own disenchantment, I think. And I, and I thought it was a good thing. Mm. But for me, there was this gradual dawning of understanding that I wasn't, particularly enjoying it (laughs) and that maybe like there was a yearning in me for more that I kept having to push away um and I needed to I needed to change the way I thought about how I related to the world I think yeah that's so interesting the deliberate disenchantment um that has come I think for many of us especially in the modern era and as we grow up which again goes back to that idea of childhood wonder and I was I, I guess maybe there's a sense of enchantment as being childish and that's why we think we're supposed to move along from it. But I also, especially in reading your book was thinking about the wonder of childhood and that sense of enchantment that many of us have, whether that is simply in being curious about nature or in actually living in made up and make believe worlds or really long enjoying like the rituals that come with religion. I mean, I think they're all different Mm -hmm. ways that that enchantment happens and feels very natural as a child. And it made me wonder, we can either think of that as childish or we can say when we've lost that, we've lost something intrinsic to who we are. Yeah. And there was this human, yeah. Yeah, something really human. So this is a quotation from your book. Early on, you said, I thought it was what I had to do in order to grow up. It took years of work, years of careful forgetting. I never realized what I was losing. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about that process of careful forgetting and of losing? And then we'll get to talk a little bit about the uh, (laughs) careful remembering and finding. (laughs) No, I, I think that, um, you know, on one hand, I was very conscious of deliberately pushing back against any any time that that rose up in me that, you know, the, the sense that I was leaning towards a, a kind of more spiritual understanding of the world. And I'd catch myself doing it and, and kind of almost tell myself off and say, you know, that's not that's not the rational way to live. 
Um, and and that it was maybe embarrassing that maybe in the company I kept, I didn't feel like I could come out and say, I think there's more, don't you? <laughs> you know? yeah. I was um, thinking about this and wondering whether what the reasons are for the disenchantment of our age. And I wondered mm. whether religion in the past served as a conduit of enchantment from those years mm. that we move from childhood to adulthood, whether it's something that's kind of given to us when we're young, but in order to keep it alive, we need some sort of pathway. And and one of the questions I had mm. when I was reading your book was whether religion in some ways is a, a pathway, not the only pathway or, you know, there, I'm not yeah. trying to suggest that must be it, but I just wondered whether part of what has gone alongside is this kind of um, priority, as you're saying, prioritizing of reason and rational thinking and mm. a denigration of these religious rituals and practices, again, of all sorts of forms and varieties, but whether we really need something to guide us from childhood to adulthood when it comes to that sense of um, there being something more. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like it sets up a framework through which we can explore bigger ideas than simply like the business of every day. And I mean, I grew up without that, although I did have contact with Christian religion because I was uh, I was at a church school and I went to mm. Girl Guides and, you know, I, I spent quite a lot of time in church. And so, you know, I understood the structures and the way of thinking, even if I didn't ever particularly feel like they were my belief system. Mm. And, you know, for example, I, you know, I learned to pray at school, which was something that just carried on through the rest of my life as a as a practice that had no kind of foundation hmm. um and i you know i i just began to feel i think what you know when i started to write this book that without that with living with that rejection was living with an active pushing back against something that i wanted to do like i had an instinct for it it wasn't that um you know taking on a spiritual practice or a, or a religion would have injected something into me it's that I seem to automatically reach towards it and to need it, actually, to, to need it as like part of the full spectrum of how I could think. Um, and not having that spiritual perspective meant that I felt like I was only using a, a sort of small section of my total capacity for interaction with the world and, and how to think about it. it. It was a cutting down and it and it began to actually feel more and more restrictive as, as time went on. Yeah. And obviously, you know, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, of course, religion can also be a path to disenchantment because it yes. can also <laughs> come under the banner of rationality or of control. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, even as I'm listening to on the one hand, I wonder whether for you, almost not having the beliefs, but get, being given some of the forms might have been helpful in some way, <laughs> just in the sense of yeah. you weren't yeah, thinking, oh gosh, I have to do it this way, but more like I can receive what I'm being given. And um, if it seems like something that connects with what I need as a human um, who has a spiritual dimension to life, then I'll use it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's advantageous because I I never um, I never had that sense of patriarchal control from it because 
it wasn't coming from my family and so I know a lot of people that I speak to who grew up with very, you know loads of different religions yeah are very much against it because that at some point they felt like it yeah took excessive control of them told them what to do didn't let them develop and explore their own values for example I mean it's certainly not true of all religious people but I think yeah. one of the things that's been driving our you know secularization or our disenchantment has been this increasingly kind of sharp analysis of of patriarchy really and how mm -hmm. you know controlled lives have, have often felt and how um hierarchical systems have felt incredibly oppressive rather than you know, feeling like they're enhancing life particularly so i didn't have that i just got to go to church and quite enjoy the atmosphere you know <laughs> i used to uh, when i was at university i used to sing in the chapel choir three times mm. a week and uh you know to go into a lit space every night with candle you know only candlelight the most beautiful song um and a and a sense of peace falling on the room and a sense of intent to me was absolutely a wonderful space to enter into but i didn't believe and so yeah. that cut me off from tr feeling like I truly belonged there mm. yeah I'm I, I do think having access to those spaces I mean again there are people who for whatever reason still feel cut off even from that sense of peace that you had um and yet mm. I do I'm thinking about you know walking around through most of the world with a little screen in our hands and not noticing what's around us, whether again, that's the natural world or being able to sit and be still or sit and be bored or um, just experience our own bodies and our communities and environments with a uh, less mediated um, mm. yeah, perspective. And I, I do wonder, yeah. well, one of the things you wrote um, early on again was um, if there were a spirit of this age, it would look a lot like fear. And uh, obviously- yeah you know, awakening wonder in an anxious age is the subtitle of the book. And so I do wonder about that relationship between anxiety and enchantment or disenchantment. And and even just yeah. our modern age, we've obviously got both um, the COVID pandemic as well as the, uh, you know, technological age that we're in. So could you speak a little bit about how, what, what relationship you've seen between fear or anxiety and mm. this longing for enchantment? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we've talked a lot in the last few years about our distractedness, you know, and, and the way that our screens are pulling us from the real world, if you like, um, and into this digital space where we're numbed to, you know, the sensory inputs that we'd otherwise be noticing and also the, the social interactions that are in the room around us when yeah. we're busy interacting with, you know, sometimes complete strangers. And I... I wonder if we don't need to flip that a little bit, flip our understanding of it, because I, I would see instead that we're fleeing onto our screens to escape something that feels very overwhelming in the real mm. world. And I I think that is, uh, you know, it's, it's complex. Uh, I think we're often escaping a sense of conflict and intergenerational conflict or political conflict that we don't know how to solve and, and we've no longer got the comfort to to be in disagreement so we you know we're fleeing onto more common communities uh, online mm. but i also think this sense of distraction does come from a, a feeling of fear 
which is maybe quite diffuse, but we we feel like something's going to happen. It's it's profoundly apocalyptic, actually. Like we we feel like the end of the world is somehow imminent, whether that's from the pandemic and and clearly that there was a lot to be afraid of there. But also, you know, we're worrying about environmental disaster. We're worrying about, um, you know, violence and, and particularly gun crime, you know, coming and visiting us. There's a there's a big war that you know on in the Ukraine that looks like it could well roll into a, an, a into a world war. Yeah, all of those things are terrifying. Like they're legitimately frightening. Yeah, and it's no wonder that we're struggling to concentrate on the finer things in life when we're literally looking over our shoulder to see what's coming. And so, what? I mean, I agree. <laughs> those are all real, <laughs> and, and and on some level the easiest place to flee right now is these devices that we've got. Um, and yet they also, I think, leave us pretty unsatisfied. Uh, you know, yeah. at the end of scrolling through Instagram, I do not feel the same peace that I do at the end of sitting in a contemplative space, even though I am going to scroll through Instagram every day and I'm not going to sit in a contemplative <laughs> not space. Not going to stop. <laughs> right? You know, so, I, yeah, I, you know, exactly. I am I am very much a part of this <laughs> problem. But I'm wondering, yeah. yeah, about the, well, the idea of awakening wonder. And um, there's a another phrase you have of just needing instructions for re-enchantment. And I'm curious to know mm. what, instructions you discovered are there instructions for re-enchantment <laughs> i wish there was a cheat sheet that you yeah. could just like hold in front of your nose and it would all be easy um i mean i i began really with just trying to find a way to leave my desk because i think during the lockdowns you know when i couldn't go out i'd got very used to almost clinging to my desk even if i wasn't doing anything but it felt meaningful and productive to have my laptop open and to be looking at something and I eventually, I, I had the foresight to put a little post-it note above my desk that said, go for a walk. Hmm. And one day when I was feeling like really lost, I noticed this note and I was like, right, okay, I'm going to go for a walk. And just the act of getting up and leaving the house was actually quite transformative for me. Moving my body, um, you know, noticing what season I was in. But I, I walked up to... Um, a place near me which I was I think really set up the tone for the whole book because um, the local authority has installed Britain's newest stone circle uh, on, on a village green at the top of our town mm. and I for me that took me straight into this space where I was thinking about the clash of all that's happening here that on one hand we don't know what we want anymore. You know, I live in a fishing town. We're full of little chapels because the, you know, seaside towns where, where sailors have gone out to sea have always had loads of religious spaces where people can, you know, lay down their, their hopes and fears in between these risky trips out. Yeah. But we're not visiting those anymore so much. And so instead we've created a sort of facsimile of these ancient structures that we find across the British Isles. But they're kind of hard to love because they're so new. Like one of the things that we appreciate about them is their ancientness. And I that was a, a really interesting reflective space for me to enter because here was I yearning for something more without knowing what that more was and feeling quite embarrassed to be yearning for it in the first place, you know, having mm. no one that I could really share that with. 
and I arrive in this in this place that has been made almost as an open invitation to create new meanings you know there's there's no fixed meanings that those stones offer they are aligned to um to the uh, equinoxes actually or mm. the solstices i can't remember but they are aligned to some of the kind of major celestial events of the year but with no given interpretation and no uh, practice laid down over the years to follow and I think a whole lot landed in me while I was walking through them. I took my shoes off and walked barefoot between mm -hmm. them. And it, it made me question a lot of my own assumptions about how I could value, a, you know, a notion that people had worshipped in a place for a long time. And it, it, would, it would have made it easier for me because it would have let me put aside my own need to make my own meanings. But here in this space, I needed to figure that out for myself. And that meant sinking into my body and responding to that moment and, and bringing my own state of mind into that space rather mm. than waiting for it to give me a state of mind. And I found that ultimately quite enchanting. <laughs> you know, that, that here was I on the cusp of, you know, a new era, figuring it out. And I, and I actually think that that uncertainty became like a really a real guiding light for the whole book well that's it's interesting because one of the things that your book made me think about is how right now we know in terms of information more or have access to knowledge about more on every level than we ever have in human history so we've got more information we mm. have in some ways i think access to more experiences we can get on an airplane and go somewhere if we want to and have the you know money yeah. and ability to do so but nevertheless largely we have more information and more experience and yet i think one of the things that struck me in your book is how much knowledge has been lost and that we know less than we ever have in other ways because we aren't stopping to pay attention in that sense of taking off our shoes, uh, both kind of literally mm. and metaphorically. And yeah. it made me wonder whether that sense of longing for meaning and purpose and a sense of um, a reason for our existence might have very little to do with having lots of information and a lot to do with having uh, a different type of knowing, which I think you write about in a mm. couple of different I mean, really throughout the book, whether it's in, yeah. you know, knowing how to bake bread or knowing how to keep bees or knowing what to do in an ancient or modern, I guess, um, kind of sacred space. Yes. So <laughs> yeah. I, I'd love for you to tell yeah. some of those stories and talk about that kind of knowledge and where it led you and where it might lead us. And again, within that, within that idea of having some instructions for reenchantment. Yeah, so we've fallen into the trap, I think, of relying on only one kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is very brain based, you know, it's very, uh, it's critical, it's rational, um, it's based on information and the storing of information. And then the retrieval of the information, mm -hmm. you know, that, so there's that that's one way of knowing and it's an important and useful way of knowing. But what, what's died down in this is this, uh, this whole kind of spectrum of other knowledges. And many of them are impossible to be put into words, you know. So there's knowledge that's 
embedded in your hands when you're uh, when you're sensing something or making something. There's the knowledge of intuition. There's the knowledge of movement, and you know many, many, many others. And I think when we, you know, when we send our children to school, what really worries me is that we're reproducing this sense that that one knowledge is more prized than others. And that just doesn't give us the entire skill set that we need to navigate these actually very unknown spaces that we're going into. You know, we, we don't have the flexibility, we don't have the athleticism to feel our way into places. And so I've been, I guess I was trying to unpick that a lot. Um, and that for me meant you know, from making a, a sort of ritual loaf of bread called a lamas loaf, um, which is traditionally made in the British Isles to celebrate midsummer, hmm. um, and thinking about what it means to celebrate a moment with your hands like that and how that might change your relationship with something, you know, when, when actually our means of celebration are normally quite restricted now because, you know, they're, they're only one note. We have to be happy and we have to drink alcohol and we have to, hmm. you know, it has to be rowdy and noisy. Well, you know, that's that's one way of marking a moment. How, how do I mark it differently? Mm. Um, I also visited a, uh, a sort of healing well that was uh, that's sort of part of the pilgrimage route into Canterbury, which is near where I live, and thought about what it means to go and worship at a place or to go and pray at a place where generations have prayed before. And, you know, in that space, it led me into how I behaved. Like it's the place was set up to take me into gentle contemplation and to, mm. to acknowledge my own beingness in that space. Um, and yeah, so I guess, I mean, I'm an experimenter. That's how I always write books. I try a few things out. I, I visit places. I physically put myself in the place that I want to learn about. Um, but that meant that it was actually quite hard to write about in a book because I was specifically exploring spaces that go beyond words mm. and that go beyond easy explanation, you know, that are actually profoundly subjective and, and therein lies their value. Um, and then challenging myself to write about it. <laughs> well, I just want to interject here to say that you were up to the challenge. This gives me a chance to just, I had on my notes for this podcast, I have like my questions and different thoughts and whatever, but then I just wrote at the bottom, sentences I love. <laughs> I'm going to share two of them. Um, because one of the things I think you do so beautifully in this book, and I and I do think, yes, obviously it comes out of your ability as a writer, but I think it also comes out of that enchanted perspective, like that willingness um, to not simply think in kind of materialistic or rationalistic terms. So this is just a description mm. of tides. Um, and you said there are two giant waves traveling endlessly around the earth. And twice a day, we see their full volume. And that just to me was like, it's true, <laughs> right? I mean, it's rationally true, yeah. I guess. But it was like, that's such a um, poetic and artistic. And like, it gives me a, a so many more. It's like a sensory experience to read that sentence rather than mm -hmm. to simply describe in more scientific terms what's happening when a tide rises or falls. 
I'm really I'm really glad because that was a that was a moment of response from me really you know of standing by the sea and thinking I have this kind of schoolgirl understanding of how the tides work but I don't feel it you know like it yes. doesn't feel intuitive to me how this works I, I need to understand it further and I spent ages researching it and and actually I you know found that the language often got in the way of me really getting it like really getting it on a cellular level and it was only when I realized that this motion was continuous mm-hmm. around and around two bulges at once the, so the the tide bulges out where where it's closest to the moon and where it's farther away on, on one hand the gravity sucks it towards the moon I know we shouldn't talk about gravity sucking but that will do me for now <laughs> and on one the gravity is released at the opposite side so it bulges out as well and these two giant waves are continually moving around the planet. So when the tide retreats, it's not that it's moved backwards. It's just that it's lost its, the, the moon has lost its grip on the tide. So it, it, it sort of sinks back. Mm. And that felt glorious. It's not, it's not a kind of factual knowledge. It's, a, it's an intuitive, instinctive sense of movement, of planetary movement that feels like a very different form of knowledge to writing a paragraph down in your, you know, notebook at school because your teachers dictated it to you and going, yep, I've ticked that off. I've, I've got this little bit of science. Yeah, that's the shift, definitely. And that's, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm, I talk to my kids a lot because they've read the beginning of the Bible. And so they've read Genesis mm-hmm. chapter one, and they've also learned in school about the Big Bang and evolutionary biology. And they're like, okay, mom, so one or the other is true. Which is it? And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, both are true. And I don't mean by that, uh, that there were literally yeah. seven 24 hour periods in which God spoke and this is what happened. But what I mean mm-hmm. is they are different ways of knowing the same truth and they both have value and we need to ask what is trying what is the what is the writer trying to offer us here what are the questions that are trying to be answered here and in order to have as you just said like that kind of scientific understanding of how the tides work um for, i don't know for the purpose of you know sailing a ship that's different than having that sense of, again, as you said, like the the rhythm of it, the feeling of it, mm. and and the sense of wonder about it, and the sense of being a part of a universe, um, yeah. a very 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 small part, but nevertheless finding um, yes back. finding yourself in it, right? <laughs> um, so I just I, you did that in multiple places for me, and it was. Um, yeah, really wonderful <laughs> to read. So oh. I appreciate that very much. Um, well, but, I but for me, it was also like, how am I bodily linked to it? You know, yeah. like how, what part do I form in this tide? Um, and that was, it's that, it's that sense of feeling your way into the world that I was learning to do. And I'm, mm. I'm still learning, but you know, like that was, that was the shift. Yeah. Well, I love I love that in all the different places um, where you're able to do that, you know, for me as well. And I also loved so this is I have um, I have what's called a master's of divinity, which is one of those words that, again, (laughs) 
yes, yeah, back word, yeah. to the ways in which religion can be, you know, a box rather than a path. But, <laughs> but um, nevertheless, I learned a really fun theological word from you in reading this book, which is, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but hierophany, is that how you say that word? Hierophany. Yeah, I think so. Yes. As far as I'm aware. I, okay. I, well, will you yeah, explain the what is hierophany? And we, yeah, will you just talk about hierophany for a minute? Yeah. So hierophany comes from the sociologist Mercia Eliard, and he used it to describe the way that the sacred can be expressed in the material world, essentially. Um, so that could be anything from a cross for Christians, which, you know, is imbued with this deep meaning and, and kind of um, power that mm. comes from holding a kind of, you know, a, a whole gestalt of the sacred. Uh, but it could also be, uh, you know, a standing stone uh, or it could be something that's a little less uh, obvious than that. So, you know, like a sacred landscape is a hierophany. And I, I began to think about how we have personal hierophanies as well. These, these ideas or these places or spaces or objects that hold something to us that feels much more than the sum of its parts and that transcends the, the material. Yeah, there's in the epilogue, you also write about hierophany and how it's not rare. Um, and this, I'm mm. quoting you, you say, but what is rare is our will to pursue it. If we wait passively to become enchanted, we could wait a long time, but seeking it is its own kind of work. And you've said a little bit already about seeking it just from putting the post-it note of take a walk, right? Um, and giving us some descriptions of ways in which you've sought it. But do you have anything more to say about what it would mean for us um, to not wait passively to become enchanted, but to actually begin to seek the hierophanies that I, I think exist within us and all around us all the time um if we uh and this is kind of quoting jesus but have eyes to see it yeah no absolutely i mean and actually i'd go further and say i, I don't think it'll ever come to us if we don't go looking you know it's a it's an artifact of our attention and in order to really feel that that hierophany or to feel that sense of enchantment we need to train our attention gradually. Like it, it can't come to us in one go. There isn't a shortcut to it. We can't buy our way into it. And all of that sounds obvious as I'm saying it, but actually quite often we believe those things. You know, we, we believe that we will only find awe if we go to a special place that we pay good money to go to and we'll have a more awe-inspiring experience if we pay more money for it, you know? <laughs> Um, or, you know, we must travel halfway around the world in order to experience a place that's really magical. Like, you know, I wonder how many people living here, you know, listening to this, if I said, um, think about what you think about Tibet, you know, and, and think about whether you think that is a more special place than the place you live in now. And I bet if people were honest with themselves, a load of them would say, yeah, all right, I, I did kind of think that Tibet was had some yeah. special stuff going on. Yeah. Um, I I don't think that's true. I think the difference between Tibet and my back garden is that lots of people believe that Tibet is special and so they direct their attention to it. They spend time thinking about it and treating it carefully mm -hmm. and reverently. Um, that's not to say there's anything wrong with Tibet at all, but actually I can make that space in a corner of my house or on my own front step or in an alleyway behind it, which, you know, I, I write about in, in Enchantment. 
like th these places respond to our attention and our intent mm -hmm. and our desire to make them feel significant so we create the hierophanies but we have to do that consciously you know th these are not things that will knock on our door and say i'm really special actually can you <laughs> can you now like you know just suck in my my wonder um it, it's an act of our noticing and once you start doing that kind of noticing and start paying that kind of attention it becomes really addictive and really irresistible because the world begins to to glow with a with a sort of magic and it, it becomes possible well and that's where there at least and tell me if you disagree i'm curious because it seems to me there is perhaps a creating of hierophany or perhaps it is a it's it's there for the taking is not the, quite the right word either <laughs> but for the discovering for the encountering and so the work on our side is the noticing or the paying attention um but it's yeah. present and it's just something i think that i'm missing a lot of the time yeah and i, I think both i mean i think there are some there are some places that are you know waiting for our attention again and th but there's also work for us to do in creating new spaces that mm. meet our current needs um yeah so okay. yeah i mean to go back to standing stones it's irresistible to step into those places and think about them as ritual spaces and to find them quite awe-inspiring because of the amount of time they've stood um but actually we ha we have new needs now and we're inhabiting new spaces and new kinds of spaces and a, a, you know a really important question for us is how do we imbue those with that same sense of of wonder and that's complicated right because one of the, our first instincts has been to borrow artifacts from other cultures that we don't fully understand mm. in order to add that in you know to burn a certain kind of incense that we know some other spiritual community uses or you know to to dress them with um kind of borrowed religious symbols that right. we don't really understand the depths of um and you know that's, that's been called out as problematic in the last few years mm -hmm. and I, I think one of the reasons that's problematic is that uh, quite aside from the borrowing we often only like steal the good half of them the half that tells us we're okay and everything's fine mm. and we ignore the you know the more tricky demands on us like the, the more tricky moral demands that mm. say to us that you know we owe um a, a sort of debt of of service in return or that we have to look very carefully at our own behavior and our own thoughts to you know to judge them as harshly as we often judge other people mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, there is, there is a need now and I, you know, I don't have the answers for this, but I love the idea of being part of the finding of, the, of this new path. There is a need for us to create spaces that are adapted to this age and to create structures of thought that, that, that actually challenge us to be our higher selves within those spaces according to our current moral beliefs and not according to moral beliefs that we're no longer comfortable with and are there have you found any of those spaces or um practices along the way 
Well, I, I wrote an enchantment about my time spent uh, in a retreat, an online retreat. So it's it's kind of nice that this is a digital space. Yeah. Um, with a Buddhist organization called the Zen Peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they hold regular what they call bearing witness retreats where they invite people to join them to immerse in an act of understanding of, I mean, they're normally historical injustices. Mm-hmm. Um, so they hold retreats around things like homelessness, uh, Native Americans, uh, the um, the Holocaust. Um, and they the one that I attended was about slavery, yeah. slavery in America in particular. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, that was so interesting to me as a way of forming a very different kind of congregation, like a dispersed congregation, um, and about encouraging engagements in, you know, really difficult, critical spaces. And the way that that was achieved was by asking us to break down our assumptions that we brought into the room. So asking us to step away from what we thought we knew and to enter a, a sort of an attitude of unknowing and to allow ourselves to be remade again in the light of, of new evidence and of hearing voices that we hadn't heard before. Mm. And I, you know, I felt like I was intruding a little on a space where Americans were reflecting on their history of slavery. But it did make me reflect very deeply on my own country's colonial history, which, you know, has led to sort of you know similar and different outcomes through different means and and how easy it is for me to disengage with that and see it as in the deep path while judging another country for you know for doing essentially the same thing so it took me into a a really um a really challenging place actually but also a deeply spiritual place where I felt held and supported and I felt like I was holding and supporting other people. Mm. And I, yeah, I would, I would love to offer that up as a, as one of the possibilities for ways that we can start to practice into the future. Yeah. I do think we're going to need um, rituals, spaces, practices. I mean, a whole myriad set of things in order as you said, to not only to get the both and of the, uh, I guess what religious language would call, you know, repentance um, side Mm -hmm. of acknowledging human darkness and harm um, and injustice. And then also um, whether it's the celebratory and communal um, rituals or the, you know, solitary and peace, you know, finding belovedness and belonging um, within who we are and um, being able to sit in the peacefulness of that. But all of those things, it seems um, if, and as we can reawaken a sense of enchantment to your point, there are going to be things we can learn from the past and carry forward, but also some um, real Mm. need for new spaces and new ways of doing that. I had one. Yeah. I mean, Oh, sorry. No, your (laughs) turn. Well, I, I mean, it's quite exciting in lots of ways because actually we do get to to carry some things forward. But we, you know, we are being offered at the moment a global perspective composed of millions and billions of voices that we've never had the opportunity to really hear before. You know, like one of the really painful things about that experience is we can't possibly process the level of pain we're hearing you know and and the kind of multiplicity of that 
but our intent I think is is mostly really good like even though we're overwhelmed by it even though we don't always react well in the face of it initially even though we don't know what to do with it we are feeling that that calling of humanity on a global scale and it's actually really exciting to make new practice within that Mm. well and that um that leads me to what I guess at this point will be my final thought or question for you. This is a quotation um, from the middle of the book. Talking to God does not require faith, but practice. It is a doing rather than a believing, an act of devotion reciprocated in the same way it is made, mutely through the hands and the feet, the myriad attentions of the body. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit about that sense of not needing faith and belief, but practice and devotion. And um, there's some, it seems, regularity. And I don't know, I guess I also think there is some faith in practicing something, <laughs> like kind of inherent within it, yeah, but not, sure. not the same type of faith <laughs> as that which is believing a set of propositions about a divine being. I get that. Um, but yeah, what? Yeah, that's what, right. Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. Can you just say a little bit more um, as we kind of come to a close here, but about what it looks like to continue um, to practice these acts of devotion um, in and through our bodies and in and through our attention and how that actually mm. is um, a crucial aspect to enchantment. Yeah. So, so what I was talking about in that passage was um, the challenge of the challenge that I faced of having this profound sense that there was a God, but not having any knowledge or understanding of what that meant, Mm. you know, and and not having any kind of fixed meaning about what that God thought or like wanted me to do or or, or the form that, that, that they took, you know. And so I found that I could, that the best thing I could do was just to keep returning to that sense of something sentient being there and abandoning the fixed, you know, the desire towards fixed meanings around it. Mm -hmm. Um, And also thinking about how an entity like that would receive my communication. And I didn't think it would simply be through words. You know, I, I felt like there were other ways to worship and to pray and to make contact with that sense of prayerfulness rather than prayer as a as an object mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and so yeah i think and i think you're right it takes a kind of faith to keep returning to to enacting that but i also think that there's a there's a direct contact there that that isn't intermediated with words or beliefs and so i find that i need a sense of faith much less because actually I feel the physical pull towards it. I feel that direct communication and that direct bodily need for that immersion in in that bigger sense of consciousness or sentience and my connect and like, you know, my absolute connection to that rather than my separateness from it. Mm. I don't know if I'm expressing that very well. It's quite hard to explain. <laughs> no, I think you are. And I um, and it's interesting because I think for me, you know, as someone who comes from a very particularly Christian perspective, there's still 
so much about what you've written that rings so true, including this, that, you know, I certainly as a kid going to church did have a set of beliefs. And on Mm -hmm. some level, I could still say that that is true. It's not as though I no longer believe almost everything I would have said I believed, you know, 30 years ago. And yet it is more the... um, the putting that into practice. And for me, this expanding, ever expanding sense of that, what that sentience and consciousness, um, and connection Mm. and invitation into that connection, um, that is always going to be beyond my comprehension and yet feels also more intimately present even if I feel like in some ways I would say when I was 12 and going through confirmation class and like giving the right answers, I had more, yes, I yes. felt like I had more <laughs> comprehension than I do now. But I now mm. would say having walked with an expanding sense of God's love of the presence of, you know, what I would call the spirit of God, um, and of the life of Jesus, all of those things have actually have decreased my comprehension, but expanded yes. my sense of kind of intimate belonging, you yeah. know? So that's where I just yeah. really connected to that sense of talking to God does not require faith, but practice. And, um, mm. and that sense of being yeah present to an unknowable and yet intimate um being who, who, you know, who is always there. Um, I love the idea that as we get older, we can deepen our relationship with that, you know, with that, that sense, you know, that that actually it takes experience to keep returning to it, but also that we can get much more comfortable with uncertainty and, and not knowing as we get older, whereas maybe as children we want to master it very quickly mm-hmm. and and actually i've learned to let go of my own mastery of anything as i've got older and and that's a real pleasure yeah. <laughs> i know there's so much i wish i could go back and give to my teenage self including the need mm. to get it all right but i suppose that's <laughs> just part of the journey <laughs> so yes indeed mm. <laughs> well catherine thank you so much for your time and for this book it's such a gift um And I know it will be something that I go back and reread and pass along to other people because um, there's so much in it that is, yeah, that awakens wonder. And I'm really grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to talk to you. As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Love is Stronger Than Fear. We rely on you to spread the word about this podcast. So think of someone who would enjoy this conversation and send it their way. Go ahead and give it a rating or a review and contact me if there's something you want to say, if you want to suggest a guest, or if you want to just um, respond to some of the thoughts that you heard here today. My email is amyjuliabeckerwriter at gmail.com. I also want to thank Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, Amber Beery, my social media coordinator, for doing all the things to make sure that it comes out into the world in a a good shape. And finally, as you go into your day today, I hope you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.